Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, or grab one out of the front pew, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 24 today, and continuing our Heroes of the Faith series by studying the life of Joshua. I don't think that there's anyone here that can argue this point. We're living in very unusual and incredible times. We're living in a time where everything that we thought was concrete in our social norms is rapidly changing. Change is happening so fast that it seems like every time we turn on the TV or we open a magazine or a newspaper, everything has changed. It's like, like something that we sh were sure that this was the way that society thinks. All of a sudden, it's, it's over here. And it creates within us uh, a sense of a sense of apprehension of the way things are going. Because as a rule, people don't like change. None of us really like change. Unless you're one of these really unusual innovators or entrepreneurs, most of us don't like change. And in fact, most of us really hate change. Think of something at work that, that you've been doing for years and years and years, and you've always done it this way. And then you get a new boss who says, you're going to do it my way. That automatically kind of brings up within us a sense of resentment and a sense of almost panic because we get so used to doing things the way that, that we've always done them. We find comfort in a regular, predictable, and unchanging lifestyle. We, change really messes with our, our sense of peace and our sense of faith. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be reading about two men who led millions of people through a significant change, and those two men are Joshua and Caleb. They are unique in our, among our heroes of faith in that they alone are the only two people alive during the Exodus that made it from being a slave and made it all the way into the Promised Land. Every other adult over the age of 21 who came out of Egypt during the Exodus died in the desert, including Moses and Aaron. That in itself would make them worthy of taking a few Sundays to study them. And how they made such an amazing transition from being born slaves to being found worthy to lead others into the promised land. Now last week we studied Joseph. And we saw how he wasn't always able to see the why of what was going on in his life. We looked at how his faith was almost shaken in the pit. We looked at how his faith was challenged at Potiphar's house. And we saw how his faith was almost destroyed when he was sent to prison. But after Joseph came into the fulfillment of the dream that God had for him, after all of that trial was done, he was able to look back on his life and say, that's why. That's why that had to happen. And then he was able to see God's plan. He was able to see God's provision, his providence, his protection, all those things upon his life was, he saw looking backward upon all the situations that he was in. So we're going to do the same thing with Joshua this week and Caleb next week. Joshua 24 records Joshua's final address to the people of Israel after they had conquered the promised land. Joshua begins by reminding the people of all the incredible and miraculous events that God has done in order to bring them from Egypt into this promised land. And God, Joshua reminds them that what they have accomplished was impossible. 
and how they always need to remember that it was not by their own hands that they stood there today. Joshua then reminded them that they are now living in a land containing houses that they did not build. They are living and eating fruit from trees that they did not plant or tend. They are harvesting vegetables that they did not plant or sow. They are now living safely in a land that they had no chance of holding on to unless they stay faithful to God. Joshua was sure to remind them that from Egypt until his day that he gives this final charge to Israel, that it was all done by God's power and it would only be held by God's continued favor and his grace. Joshua brings all these truths to mind before he gives them this last charge before he dismisses the nation of Israel to go into their inherited land. Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers who worshipped these gods beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But... If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And Father God, I just ask, Lord, as we study the life of Joshua, that we can see how you took a man born into slavery, whose father was a slave, whose grandfather was a slave, and you were able to take him from a slave and victim mentality into a mighty warrior leader that was able to conquer a land that they should never have been able to take. Father God, just do this in our hearts and help us to apply it to our own life that no matter where we came from in life, you have a plan for our lives that is so incredible and so fulfilling for us that if we just take a hold and grab onto it, we will know your peace, we will know your power, and we will know your provision in our lives. Father God, do this for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, how we lear- as we learned last week, our lives are only properly understood by looking backwards. Remember that hindsight is 2020. So let's look at some of the things in Joshua's life that helped him lead the people of Israel to victory and into God's blessings. So we're going to explore how his character was molded from being a young man born into slavery and transformed into this mighty warrior leader that was able to stand before Israel and give this kind of charge to them that would say, me and my house, were serving God. So let's look first at the most important aspect of what set Joshua apart from the rest of Israel. And that first aspect is that he had his own relationship with God. That sounds kind of funny, but I'm going to explain this in, in a way that, that is going to make this very clear to you. I want you to consider a little bit of background about Joshua here. It's recorded in Numbers 11.28 that Joshua, the son of Nun, had been Moses' aide since his youth. So he, when we talk about a youth in the Bible, we're talking about somebody who's well under 21 years of age. So when Moses went back to 
to bring Egypt or bring Israel out of Egypt, jo, jo, uh, excuse me, Joshua was a young man. But Joshua didn't fall into the trap that so many do of living on somebody else's relationship with God. You see, most people when they come to faith, they latch on to a person before they get to know God. Most of us who have come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who have made him Lord and Savior of our lives, when we first got saved, we automatically fell in love with whoever the person who preached to us was. If it was a pastor or an evangelist, we then kind of said, you know what, I, I love this guy over here. I'm, I, I, whatever that guy says, I'm, I'm going to do because that man knows God. And it's a subtle irony that the same thing that plagues the modern day church in spiritual growth is the same thing that plagued the church back then. And that was trying to live your life under another person's relationship with God. I want to read another incident from Exodus that's one of the most tragic in the Bible. In my opinion, it's even more tragic than reading scriptures that talk about wars, talk about genocide, child sacrifice, murder and adultery, because it sums up the root cause of all of those things. In Exodus chapter 20, the backdrop of what we're going to read is that Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt into Mount Sinai. And then God gives Moses and Israel the Ten Commandments. God's perfect moral character has been revealed to the people of Israel. But instead of desiring that character for themselves, instead of drawing near to God so that God could heal their sinful hearts and cleanse them, they respond very poorly. In Exodus 20, verse 18, it says that the people saw the thunder and lightning. And they heard the trumpet, and they saw the mountain in smoke, and they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And this is the most tragic verse one of the most tragic verses in the whole Bible. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let me bring this home to us, to a way that we would understand. Imagine for a moment that God's manifest glory falls into this building right now. To the point where it happened like what was described in the Old Testament, where people couldn't even stand up because the glory of God was weighing so heavily upon us. I'm on my face up here. Maybe I was in the middle of preaching, giving announcements, or saying good morning. God's manifest presence comes out. I'm laying on the floor, groaning, and, and just praying and worshiping God. And I look up, and the building's empty. And I'm, I'm going, where, where, where are the people, God? Where did the people go? And I managed to crawl my way over to the door here, and I see the last of you going up over the hill in the Dollar General's parking lot over there. And I'm thinking, what is going on? What, what are they doing? And, and, and God lets me stand and run after you, and I say, come back to the building. Come back. God's presence is there. God's presence is there. And one of you steps forward and says, 
We don't want that. Whatever's going on over there, that's just too weird. That's just too freaky for me. I don't understand. I don't understand that kind of power that was in that building. All I know is I don't want it. I'll tell you what, Pastor John. Pastor John, you live your life in such a way that you be so consecrated, you be so separate from the world, you get rid of your TV or computer, whatever, whatever you think that is going to distract you from following God. You do this and you run after God and then you just kind of tell us what he wants. That's what's happening here in Israel right now. Any pastor worth anything would be heartbroken of a response from his people like that. And apart from Moses and Aaron, this is a response of all of Israel with the exception of two men, Joshua and Caleb. The Bible says they had a different spirit about them. Think about this. Six million people incredibly, miraculously rescued from slavery. And yet the only people outside of the immediate leadership of Israel really knew the God they served. Two people. Joshua had developed his own relationship with God. To be sure, being Moses' personal assistant probably helped that relationship. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly that had a big influence on, your life, on his life. He got to see intimacy with God and what that looked like firsthand. But Joshua doesn't just trust in his pastor to be close to God. He had his own produce, pursuit of God, and we see that in Exodus 33. Moses had set up a tent near the edges of the encampment. And when we say encampment, we kind of think, well, you know, it's a few hundred yards this way, a few hundred yards that way. Keep in mind that Cook County, Illinois, which Chicago is located in, has as many people as Israel had here. Six million people. That's a big, that's a moving city that they had there. And he went and he set up a tent on the outskirts of this city where he could go and meet with God. It was called the Tent of Meeting. It was his personal prayer closet. And Exodus 33.11 says this about it. It says, Inside this Tent of Meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave that tent. Joshua himself was a man of deep, deep intimacy with God through his own personal prayer life. The phrasing in the Hebrew scripture for this verse doesn't just... In doesn't just say that, that this is something that Moses told him to do. It just doesn't say that, okay, I'm leaving the tent, you guard it, make sure nobody else comes into it. This was a volitional act of his will where he wanted to remain inside the presence of God. He chose to stay in God's glory. This is the same tent that Moses would exit and have to wear a veil because he would be glowing so brightly with the glory of God. Joshua chose to remain in that same presence. There's no record of Joshua's countenance glowing like that, but we know through how he lived their life that this was a man who had experienced his God in all of God's fullness. Don't you want that for yourself? Don't you want that kind of relationship with God 
where you just walk with him and you feel his presence at all time in your life? I do. Some people ask me, you know, John, why did you become a pastor? Why do you, why do you, you know, take your religion so seriously? I said, I, I said, I serve God because that's what a Christian should do. And I just have a unique position within the kingdom of God. But within the kingdom of God, position of leadership is actually the lowest thing you can aspire to, if you think about it. Those among you who will serve will be considered the least. Isn't that what Jesus said about that? The second thing that set Joshua apart was his willingness to stand for God against the crowd. Keep in mind, through the scripture we're about to read, I just want to set it up a little bit. It's been two years since the nation of Israel left Egypt, since the exodus happened. They've dwelt in the desert surrounded by the presence of the Lord shown to them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Imagine that kind of manifestation of God. Whew. Whew. During those two years, the law of God had been given. Preparations had been made for them to enter into the promised land. And most importantly, God had set up the Levitical sacrificial system as a way that God is going to interact and meet with his new nation. In biblical history, God's first priority was always to make sure the people have a way to fellowship with them. That was why those two years happened. That's why they could have get to the promised land in two weeks. They could have marched from, Israel, from Egypt to Israel in two weeks. But he had them spend two years with him, setting up this system of worship with him. That's a whole other message, but it really deserves our attention. And a great way to start would be to study the interaction and timeline of Nehemiah and Ezra. You can have some homework. They rebuilt the temple long before they worried about rebuilding their, their homes and, and the walls of Jerusalem. That's just something you should study for yourself. But back to Joshua and Israel. The cloud representing God's presence lifts. Whenever that happened, they had to go follow that cloud. And the nation comes near the border of the promised land. They're getting ready to take the promised land. Moses gets a word from God that he should send 12 people out, the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. They go out to the promised land, they spy it out, and they bring a report back to Moses and the people. They're gone for 40 days. They come back bringing fresh fruit, game, and a report that this is indeed a wonderful land. They say it's a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a, a Hebrew euphemism, means it's a perfect land. It's perfect. We couldn't ask for a better place on earth than this place right here that you say you're going to give us. But then the bad news comes. He says, but Moses, people, you need to understand, there's giants in that land. Huge people, descendants of Anak, probably the great-grandfathers of Goliath. People that are, you know, seven, eight, nine feet tall are filling this land. The rest of them are savages. They're people that are always fighting. They're always in war. They're experienced armies and soldiers there. And they're holding large, huge, huge defended cities with impregnable walls. He said, we walked past Jericho and you could put two... Um, chariots side by side is how, th how thick this wall is. It's, it's a dozen feet thick. 
There's no way we'd be able to, to penetrate that wall. And the nation of Israel hears the report of 10 of 12 of these spies. And their hearts just turn to jello. Any amount of courage that they had just fell to the ground at that point. All the anticipation they've had for the last couple of years, all the waiting, all the time devoted to the building of the tabernacle to worship God with and donating gold and silver and all the things that had to be required to set this tabernacle up and all the equipment used to worship God. Now it just seems like it's wasted. In Israel's mind, it was the death of the dream that had carried them out of Egypt. And that's where we pick up the story in Numbers chapter 14. After the, sp the other ten spies give their report, and the, and the nation starts crying in fear instead of faith, it records in, in Numbers 14 verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were there among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Joshua and Caleb stood there alone against ten other spies, people of great standing in their community, people of houses greater than theirs. They stood against them. They stood against six million former slaves, people who were always whispering rebellion against Moses. Anytime something got a little tough in the, in the, in the, in the walk over there, they started whispering rebellion and casting down Moses. Imagine what they're whispering now. They're probably getting ready to lynch these two. Moses and Aaron are on their faces before God, begging forgiveness for a nation because of the people's lack of faith in the God that had brought them out of Egypt. And notice who is speaking. It's not Moses. It's not the leader standing up and saying, we're going to do this. Aaron is still on his face. Aaron's son and the other priests aren't even mentioned. It's Joshua and Caleb standing alone. What happened to these two men during these two years in the wilderness, getting ready to prepare a people to enter in to the promised land? What, what happened to these men that six million other people had missed? They actually knew God. They had a relationship with the Lord that was not secondhand through Moses and Aaron. They had a personal understanding of the God that they served. It was an integral part of who they were. They actually met God at Sinai. You see, there were 70 elders that actually got down and sit down at a table and eat before the God of Israel. They actually got to see God. And I suspect that the other ten men who went with them to spy out the land, being leaders in their, in their communities, were most likely at Sinai also. But Joshua and Caleb were the only people who actually met God. I'm sure all twelve of those, pe of those men were in awe. I'm sure that when God's presence came down, they shook in reverent fear. I'm sure as the ground was quaking and the rafters were shaking, 
that, 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 that they were amazed at God's power. But ten of these men never really let that power touch them. It's like a person who claims to be a Christian, but has never truly surrendered to Jesus Christ. Or a person who thinks that because of a prayer they said when they were 10 years old, it covers them now even though they live a life of unrepentant sin. These were the 10 men that Joshua and Caleb were standing with. Personally, I have been in church services where the power of God was so strong that everybody was on their faces. That still happens today. It happens that, that God comes down in his church and you just feel the presence of God and sometimes all you can do is weep. However, I've also seen the power of God moves, move and everybody worshiping God. Everyone feels it except for one or two people. They're standing there in the back. Their arms are crossed. They have a scowl on their face, rolling their eyes like, okay, come on, pastor, quit preaching. Come on, is the church over yet? Packers are coming on. Come on. And they're just... And I used to wonder, how could these people be so dismissive of the power of the Holy Spirit moving among us? How could they not feel the manifest presence of God in the, in the room? And then it occurred to me, Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit fell upon the New Testament church, he did not come down in a cloud and envelop the entire room. It said that he came down and hovered over them and individual tongues of fire touched every single person. God has a personal touch like that for you this morning. He doesn't come down and bless us all the same way. He wants an intimate relationship with each and every single person that lives. These ten men had resisted their tongue of fire at Sinai. Since they left Egypt, they had every single opportunity to experience God, as Joshua and Caleb did. They lived with a pillar of fire lighting their night, or a cloud covering them during the day. But they never sought God for themselves. And their fear, their doubt, and their unbelief was infectious. It was a spiritual cancer that spread the entire community and ruined the destiny of six million people. Ten people wipe out the destiny of six million. Joshua stood alone, and with Caleb, he was the only one, the only one, including Moses who led them out, including Aaron who led them in worship, the only one over the age of 21 in that entire six million people who lived to see the promised land. Joshua and Caleb stood alone before a group of people who were ready to really lynch them. These people wanted no expectation no part of this expedition into the promised land. They didn't trust the God that brought them out. All they saw in their mind were their giants. All they saw were the savage tribes. While the pillar of fire was in their midst, they could not see God for who he was. Even after be seeing the miracles, even after being supernaturally fed every single morning with manna and quail, 
They still had doubts that God could do it. Even after watching fire of God destroy their enemies, they doubted him. Even after they beat enemies and armies that should have been taken them apart. This isn't a, a trained army. This is a bunch of former slaves. Any army on earth, a Boy Scout troop should have been able to wipe them out. And yet, because of God, they defeated enemy after enemy after enemy. They can't see or believe what they refuse to experience for themselves. These are a people who only knew God for his blessings, but they never sought his heart. And that is why Joshua and Caleb stood alone. Lest we think we get off easy being in the New Testament under the covenant of grace, Jesus has the same expectation of us. When he said, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is just confirming what is happening here in the Old Testament. Jesus went on to say, whoever denies me, whoever is ashamed of me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I can guarantee you, just as a Christian, put aside the pastor part for a moment, just as a Christian who reads his Bible, you will never stand for God if you never meet with God. That's the test of true faith, when it's willing to stand alone against the crowd. And being able to stand alone from God against the crowd enabled Joshua to lay aside his plans for conquering the promised land. Because the third thing that enabled Joshua to stand is that he recognized God's sovereignty. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for this place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 40 years later, 40 years, an entire nation has fallen in the desert. Now their children are coming up and being, getting ready to take the promised land. Jo Joshua is standing on the edge of the promised land, looking across the plain at Jericho. For the past few months, your people are moving toward Palestine. Put yourself in his place. You've defeated a few minor tribes, but now you're getting ready to face those giants. You're getting ready to face the savages. You're getting ready to face the large cities with the huge walls. You're in your tent every night in prayer, racking your memory of places that you walked through 40 years ago. You're drawing tactical maps on papyrus, and you're conferring with your generals, how do we take this land? How, do, how are we going to do this? And they all tell him the same thing. The only way to take this land 
is to start with Jericho. To start with the toughest city we could possibly go after. The city with the hugest walls. So now Joshua is looking at this city and he's making plans. He's thinking, maybe I need a siege tower. Maybe we need to be, bring a whole bunch of towers together so we have people in the, in the front and we just push this thing up and they're able to get over this wall. Or, or maybe we just bring ladders with the hinges on them where we just run toward the wall and they plant on the ground and flip up and we run up the ladders. Maybe, maybe we can do it like that. Or maybe, maybe we build some catapults that smash these walls down. It'll take a long time. They're huge, but you know, it'll, it'll save hundreds of lives if, if we do it this way. Or maybe we just bring a big battering ram and smash the gate in. And I can imagine Joshua <coughs> standing on the plain, staring at this city from a distance, wondering how he's going to defeat the strongest walls ever built at that time. But then... Jesus shows up. Jesus is the commander of the army of the Lord. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus right here. And all those plans, all that trepidation, all that worry that he had just went out the window because I am showed up. And this is where many of us, myself included, often make mistakes in life. We draw up our plans to fulfill our God-given dreams and do everything we can to make them, make them happen and make them a reality. And sometimes we can get so focused on our way of doing things that even if God were to show up in his timing to bring our dreams into realities, we'd miss him. We'd miss his visitation in our lives. We would actually miss God trying to fulfill his dreams with, for us. And this happens a lot. It happens in our lives. It happens in our families. It happens in our, in our jobs and in our communities. And tragically, it can happen in our church. Joshua saw the angel of the Lord. And all of his worries, all of his ideas, all of his plans vanished. And Joshua showed us the way to victory in our lives. He bowed and he worshiped. And said, my God, I am ready to receive your orders. And the rest is history. The same person who is described as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament tells us in the New Testament, seek first, 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 the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. If you want my dream fulfilled in your life, seek me first. And this recognition of God's sovereignty not only helped Joshua defeat Jericho and the entire land that God had promised Israel, but it helped him be one of the few in the Bible that finished his life without a major stumbling and without a major sin recorded. I want to finish well. I want to know God for myself. And not just because I sat under this preacher, this pastor, this apostle, whatever it is. I want to be willing to stand alone with God against the crowd because my faith is completely in Him. And finally, I want to recognize His sovereignty and His vision in my life. 
so that someday should the Lord tarry and I'm laying on my deathbed, I can say with a straight face to those who are surrounding me, as for me and my house, we served the Lord. Amen.